what is the future? It kind of is, for whom's sake is this for? <laughs> you know? uh, I think there's a lot of discussions on the question, but not particularly any strong claims of where to go forward in. While true in one sense is not true in another, you know, there, there are distinctional differences. Let me put it this way. Like, if, if we want design to be any kind of capacity of power in the world, is really, in my opinion, to give design the authority to have any kind of power in the marketplace. Welcome to another episode of The Designed Podcast. Today's guest, Thomas Jockin. Thomas is the founder of Type Thursday. He's also a lecturer at City University of New York, Queens College, City College, and previously at State University of New York Fashion Institute of Technology. He is a practicing typeface designer with clients such as Google, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Foot Locker, and Express. Thomas has received his BFA in Communication Design from Parsons School of Design, the new school, and his postgraduate certification in typeface design from Cooper Union. Thomas and I talk about design education having authority, the constant flux, the critical skill set of typography, how more methods and more theory doesn't really work. We also talk about design programs keep adding more and more, creating students that are less prepared. Also, we discuss while we need to create good designers, we also need to create better people. Thomas and I have a great conversation about all these things and so much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thomas, welcome to the Design Podcast. How are you? Peter, um, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent, excellent. We're glad to have you. And uh, to set the record straight from now on uh, for the rest of the podcast, I'm going to be calling you Tom. We've had a brief uh, discussion pre-podcast as we're preparing, and I'm like, what is it? Is it Thomas, Tom, TJ? TJ. You know, <laughs> I, I go by many names yeah. based on who I know. Many, so. many names. Excellent. For uh, for sake of simplicity, I'm going to use Tom, and uh, and everyone will love it. It'll be great. It'll work. That's great. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your your background. I know that you're uh, involved a lot in New York City with the design community, with typography, the type community, and also teaching. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. I mean, I went, I graduated from Parsons for my undergrad, okay. uh, BFA in communication design. I met a type designer named Joshua Darden in my sophomore year. I became, I studied under him for about two, three years at Darden's studio. Then in 2010, I was in, in the inaugural Type A Cooper program, extended, so it's a one-year yeah. program, a postgraduate degree. Uh, and then ever since 2011, 12, I've been an independent type designer since then. And oh, fantastic. Yeah. And then one of the projects that came out of that was Type Thursday. It's a month, it's a monthly meetup around the world in eight cities, four United States, four international, where people meet once a month. They show work in progress, what they're working on. They get dialogue from the audience and how to improve that work. And then they get both the audience and the presenter gets actionable direction on what's typography, how does it work, and the diversity of things we could produce with it, all the way down from type design all the way to the highest levels of branding, advertising, and political activism. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I am, I, I must admit, I'm extremely jealous that there's not a, a, a Type Thursday close to me. And I remember uh, speaking with you at one of the Type Cons. I'm like, man, I've, I've got to get that near me. And at that time, I was just uh, two hours north of Indianapolis, two and a half hours south of Chicago. I'm like, well, there might be an opportunity maybe in Indy to kind of get this going. Uh, but I've since relocated now to uh, central Arkansas and uh, a little bit more remote. I don't know if there's that many passionate type lovers in uh, the Little Rock, Arkansas area. But, uh, you know, you never know. 
That's kind of the, I mean, that's actually a big theme in Type Thursday because it's a democratic group in the sense that we don't have like the professional experts coming to present, right? You'd be surprised what communities can produce, right? In terms yeah, of when they come yeah. together, mainly because Type is so diverse in terms of its applications. So you never know. I understand your, your concern. I think it's perfectly valid. Uh, but the world's a lot bigger place than we know. And we always yeah. be surprised if we're open ourselves up to it. Well, maybe we'll touch base on that then in a couple couple days or weeks coming up here as we get ready for uh, the fall s- academic semester to get started. Uh, I'd love to have something like that in uh, in my repertoire of feathers in the hat, you know. Um, so you're teaching as well. I am, yes. Yeah, busy. Okay, tell me a little How bit about your, about your teaching then. Yeah, so I've been an adjunct in the CUNY and SUNY systems for mm-hmm. okay. four years now, maybe three, something that range. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't know, that's the city of New York system and the state of New York system. They, uh, they overlap each other. Yeah. So my main home base is Queens College in Flushing, Queens. That's where I teach in the design program. But I've also taught at City College where I teach in the summers. And uh, I've taught in FIT, uh, Fashion okay. Institute of Technology, Type and actually very excitingly, I'm teaching graphic design and history in the fall. So oh, wow. the range of things I actually teach are quite broad. It goes from type design to typography one and two, graphic okay. design one and two, to graphic design history going forward. Right, because that's what your, um, I guess I'll call it traditional BFA degree is. It's a communications graphic design foundation. So you've, you've always had that and plus you've worked in the industry uh, prior to, to just going solely uh, type design, correct? That's what you're at now, like pure type design or yes, are you still yes, doing other? Yeah, since 2012. Yeah. So, I, you know, my clients have been like Starbucks, Foot Locker, Express, working that's, on commission projects for type. That's, uh, you know, it, it, it always excites me, but it also amazes me that you can have a full-time career just creating type, you know? So that's a, it's a beautiful world. I would, I would, uh, I'd appreciate some of that as well. That'd be fun. Uh, well, just yeah. to jump on, I just wanted to say that it's beautiful and it's very cool, but it also points out, uh, actually in a lot of ways, how interdependent we are, because the more specialized you are, actually more you need to rely on others who actually see the value in what you do and have the resources yeah. to bring you in, into the equation. Just being honest in terms of how yeah. this works. That, like there's no clients who, you know, art directors to hire me or creative directors to hire me, then I don't get to do my work. Mm, right, right. That makes sense, actually. And um, do do you find yourself when you're when you're teaching? And then I'm going to ask my big question for you. Do you find yourself when you're teaching um, the correlation between your type design and what you, what you speak of in the classroom? I, I w- I'm assuming so. Well, cause, can you clarify? Do you mean in the sense of vis a vis like against like graphic design, general graphic design training? And type, or just my type design teaching and my type design production, like which, oh, which boy. direction? Yeah, yeah. I think I was thinking um, more more broadly, but I guess that would, I guess it's going to change depending on where you're at, which, which classroom you're in, or do they kind of cross? They definitely cross. You know, okay. I I think uh, as all, as some of my students kind of op- kind of complain about that everything is type for me. Like it's basically the unit of measure. <laughs> That everything yeah. is put against. Uh, more uh, I or get less. the same. Yeah, I get that. I get that as well. Go ahead. Yeah, but yeah. see, actually, I challenge them on that on two grounds. One is uh, type is the fundamental element that makes design design. That's the argument I make. 
So by mastery of that yeah. or understanding in that context, you've gained at least the foundation of mastery of the others. Not this, because other other elements are more analogous to art training, formal art training, color, composition, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, proportion, things like that. Type is yeah. the one element that seems to be essentially unique, the difference between what design training gives you and everything else does. So, yeah. to, answer, so to answer that question, as a setup, uh, yeah. how they relate. Well, first of all, one is the big reality that type is meant for a purpose. It has a use, you know, and it's, it's very easy in the type trainings, if you just isolate yourself in that, to just treat type as just for its own sake, being beautiful for its own sake, when it there's value in that, and we can definitely evaluate type in that context, it's always also for our end, for some purpose. And that is what general graphic design does with it. And it does it for some purpose or end. So any type you're producing really only gets evaluated and used well by yeah. others. So that's a big revelation I've seen from teaching and very beneficial. And I actually encourage a yeah. lot of people who are into type to do that, kind of have those kind of cross dialogues. It's really important. Yeah, I actually, I actually love that answer because I'm, of course, a passionate type lover too. I've designed a few typefaces. They're uh, rudimentary and barbaric, you know, at what they are. But nonetheless, uh, I accomplished the feat. Yeah, I, I climbed the hill and I made it happen. Um, but you're completely right. And that's the kind of the same thing I talk to my students about. I'm like, what is graphic design? It's the communication of a message using type and image. Type and image. And if you don't understand letter form, even from the, the minuscule of a 2D application, because it's just line creating shape, add some color and so on and so forth, um, it, it's do you understand the basic form? And then we could talk about rules and then we could talk about breaking the rules and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I completely agree. And when and I think there's many uh, programs out there where I see the lack of concentration in typography, unfortunately. Um, they have their type classes and they have some folks teaching type, but it's not uh, as strong as it could be sometimes. Um, so with that kind of interlude, what do you think is the state of design education today? I mean, I think it's clearly in flux. That's basically, if I had a theme, it's flux. And it's, it's how best to put this, I think it's, it's in flux and in terms of where, what direction we end up in is indefinite at the moment. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of discussions on the question, but not particularly any strong claims of where to go forward in it. Uh, so for example, you know, just one point, and this is, and by the way, I mean, also I want to be very clear, uh, what even is design or what even is permitted in the conversation is you've had in previous episodes, I've watched previous Correct. episodes of yours, and this is an open question, you know, the the analogy between like making products and what communication is while true in one sense is not true in another you know there there are distinctional differences and i can maybe you can argue that that's overlapping right and that's actually i think in a lot of cases it is uh i mean one great example is you know the, the apple team i mean i believe jonathan eyes was a product person and he had complete dominance over typographic and other user, user interface decisions to some disastrous sure. points, right? The, the Helvetica <laughs> new light movement Ooh. phase. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's a clear issue. So when we, so I need to, that's, that's kind of revealing a very important part is what is the future? It kind of is what, who, for whom's sake is this for? <laughs> you know? Ooh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, because, let me put it this way. Like if, if we want design to be any kind of capacity of power, 
in the world. Meaning in the sense, like, for example, we hear a lot of discussion about design ethics, Mike Montero, yes. all this kind of stuff. We're making claims like design has some ethical component to it, that we have some capacity, we have some ethical standards we have to work with them. Now, normally this always gets turned into some kind of utilitarian, oh, what is the right action? Don't sell cigarettes. Don't do things like, you know, some people's privacy. But that's a rather narrow sense of thinking about ethics, you know, because ethics has usually also has a question of what kind of good are we aiming towards? And quite frankly, you know, who has the authority to make the claim? This is the right direction and we need to go in this direction. You know, for example, when, when we have, when we use logic to argue with people based on reasoning, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. even a king has to bend the knee to reason in that yeah. sense. Uh, what, what knowledge do we have in design that has that same degree of force? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot, I mean, this, this is my, ind my indictment of the design education pro system. I think it's a lot of flattery, you know, I think okay. as, as Plato would comment, you know, the, that we're a form of rhetoric and rhetoric's a form of flattery. It doesn't have the same argumentative force that logic has or his form of logic would argue would have, something like that. Sure. Not to say yeah. we can't have that. I'm just saying in terms of why is this a problem? Why are we even asked this question? What is the future of education and design? Right. Is really, in my opinion, to give design the authority to have any kind of power in the marketplace of cl yeah. making claims in the world and making them realize and having people been, I mean, quite frankly, consent that we have a valid point. Much like a scientist makes a claim, we bend the knee. <laughs> yeah, like it, yeah. it, they make a claim, and even if it's not actually, if you actually knew the, the, the statistical analysis and their methods of analysis, you could start challenging them. But because you don't even have the access to that knowledge, you can't even challenge them. You have to just bend the knee to what they right. say. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, perspective on that. I kind of like that. And I do appreciate your answer. It's in flux. Um, you know, who are we serving and how do we, and I think design education is going to constantly be under change. It's going to constantly have to adjust to the marketplace, to society, to, to the needs, um, that are either created or wanted of the time. And, um, just, just kind of thinking about that, are there things that we are doing in design education that we no longer need? Are there things that we need to concentrate more on? You know, so so where are we going to start swaying? What things are going to get left behind so that we can continually get those new needs addressed? It's really complicated because the normal answer would probably be less tools, more methods, you know, more abstraction versus the explicit. But it doesn't really work. Uh, one is pragmatically. Programs have a, a technical training they have to give, right, which requires yeah. tools, and tools change. I mean, that point is that's fundamentally why does design education have to change? It's because the tools change. You know, we're mm. not using Quark Express to do layouts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old enough to know what that is. I didn't actually yeah. use it per se, but I know what it is. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was great for its time, and then it outdid itself, and thank goodness it did because I'm appreciating what Adobe's doing. And that's in a whole nother discussion, as I yes. said in a couple other podcasts. You know, you start talking about software, and uh, whew, yeah, that's a whole nother. But, but the problem is that's yeah. a kind of that's kind of looking at the the trees, not the forest, right? Yeah, because the yeah, software is exactly. meant to do something. It's for the sake of producing things. So right. the question and, then is, what are we producing? Um, yeah, yeah. You no, know, clearly exactly. the you know I think in terms of what 
you know, in terms of what knowledge we actually can contribute to, what we're trying to train our students in. Uh, now, clearly, the formal arts are, the, are definitely a requirement because that's mm -hmm. one we need that. We're a part of that circle group of the arts. So, as we said, color, composition, uh, yeah. proportion, materials, all that kind of stuff is really important yeah. and it still needs to be there. With type being a kind of a, the main grounding anchor for all of it, from my opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah. But because of that, and because type actually has the capacity to communicate, it opens a window now in terms of what I think needs to be added. And I guess the problem is, like, I'm talking about what needs to be kept or yeah. added. I'm not really talking about what's yeah, being yeah. negated. Well, that's, uh, th I mean, that's one of our biggest struggles, you know? Yeah. Um, and I would say, and then I'll let you get continue yeah, no, on totally. where your thought is, is uh, I do see more and more students graduating less and less prepared. In, in in my opinion, um, and I know in our program in particular, um, I would like to see a little bit more uh, upper level uh, classes kind of flushed out a little bit more. Uh, but again, we're a small uh, small program. You know, we keep our classes small, so they're and it's an also an art program, so they've got other responsibilities and things to work on. So that's even that's even a whole nother struggle between an art dedicated program or a design dedicated program that separates a little bit too. But uh, totally. yeah, yeah. Continue with the, what your thought was there. It, if I didn't derail you too much. No, you didn't derail me at all. It's just a yeah. matter of like, one is the issue. It's kind of ironic. We're always in this mode of like, keep adding, 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 yet yes. our students yeah. seem to be less and less prepared. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, and you're also answering my other question of art and design or art versus design. So we're, we're touching on that that question as well. Yeah, it's analogous yeah. to each other. So in, in some ways they're exactly the same, in other ways they're very clearly different. You're you right. know? Um, yeah, I mean, let's put it this way. So I think the very fact, if we're, if the purpose of, here's the thing, and that's the right, because all we, the answer to this question effectively, we need to answer first the question, what is the end of education? Like, what are we trying to do with these students? Yes, I, exactly. I think, we're, I think, one claim mode is to say we're meant to prepare these students for the marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. That's yep. one answer. Yeah. I think it's perfectly it valid. Is. I yeah. think most students would argue, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> like, the right. default, yeah. Yeah, that's sure. the default answer. And we're failing that answer. <laughs> like, we're not achieving that. Yes, yeah, we so are. that's the first thing. So clearly it, things need to change. Yeah. And uh, to, to add to that, I think every university, every educational program that's focusing in this area needs to be able to look at their faculty and know what the strong suits are to their faculty, look to their community, look to where they're actually um, sending their end product, the students, out to work, what those needs are for those students in that area, and work on trying to cater to that. Or the reverse of that is to, where do you want your students to be? What are the needs then? Look back to your faculty. What are the strong suits? So it, it really has to be... Um, designed and planned just as much as um, any other aspect of it. But uh, yeah. but actually, I would say, while that might be the obvious answer, right, the, direct, yeah, yeah. the very the, the, the clear-cut one, I actually do think, I really do personally believe there is a larger one. Like, there's actually another one that's not okay. really spoken very often. But okay. I think it's just, as, I think actually more, in a lot of ways more, I think even more it's the case, you know, it's really to make them more moral people, to be better people. Yes, like, yeah. and not just for the yeah. fact of just fact they could, they could produce widgets better. <laughs> like right, right. that is a, that is a, a, that while true and certainly fair, that's not, a, that's not the whole of a human being. Right. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there's definitely faculty and we have these discussions in our faculty group that bring this up. 
So I yeah, think it's yeah, valid, yeah. you know, but the key is clearly, I mean, man can't, man needs to get bread as well as uh, wine, right. Or honey, wherever the expression goes. Right. So you need yeah. the fun. You need that those material needs resolved so that you can move on to the higher goods. Perfectly fine. I think that's valid, but that's kind of like if you just focus on that myopic view of all this preparing for perform for school at graduation, I could challenge you on that immediately in the sense that, okay, the jobs we prepared for 10 years ago are not the jobs we're going to prepare them for 30 years from now. So it doesn't work if you just frame on that alone. You've got to aim something a little more stable as yeah, a, as a, a target. Point. Right, right. You know? So I think ultimately it's, it's being training, training a new way of seeing people that they did not have before. I know from my personal experience in education, that is the ultimate giveaway. Like yeah. it wasn't, they didn't give me the perfect answer, you know, the perfect perfection of how long my life was going to be, yeah. but it definitely gave me a new way of seeing, but, and also yeah. equip me with the knowledge and the capacities and the trust in myself to actually go find the answers on my own. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a big one. I, I completely agree with that one. I'm going to ask you a, a question here. You know, we're really kind of talking about design education. So I want to ask you the importance of virtue, uh, in education then. Well, of course, I said moral. So, of course, yeah. uh, you know, I think it's very important to clarify that, you know, the way I'm using morals is the like philosophical framing of it, not the Victorian kind of uh, uh, the chastity, keep with keep up oneself to marriage and that kind of thing. Just be very clear. Yeah. Um, I think it's the because like I said, it's it actually relates to education because so you said before by professors and assessing them in terms of their strengths. So yes. what they do well. Mm hmm. And what one does well is their virtue, as Aristotle would say. Okay, yes. So yes. it's really about affirming what people are excellent at and putting them in the ones in the right position who deserve to be there. Okay. And what cultivating do, them to become that. Well, how do you, how do you then uh, manage those that maybe aren't there? You know, to, Excellent. Uh, I've, I've had a, a few students over my decade plus of teaching where I've actually asked them, is this exactly what you're seeking? Is this, where is your passion? And I've actually had those students say, well, this isn't really my passion, but I'm here because my parents are paying for college yeah. and this seems like something I might do. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I, because again, on the education question and the virtue, I see it's leadership. And a good leader, the first thing you gotta do is you gotta get buy-in. And the first thing yeah. about buy-in as, a, as an instrument, as a tool set, like leadership is a tool set, right, of different methods. Yeah. And one of the major methods of, is buy-in. And buy-in, you've got to get a vision, agree to vision about what you're trying to do, an alignment about what you're trying to do. So, hey, listen, I mean, if, if I got a student like that, if I got to play the card of, hey, listen, you want to make your students, you want to make your teachers, your parents proud, then you got to, this is what you're going to need to do to make them proud. I don't like that because that's very well unstable as a source of motivation, mm -hmm. quite frankly, but you got to take people what they are, you know, in terms of yeah. that question. But in general, though, is finding out what their purpose is. Like, what is, what's their, what do they get excited about? What do they focus about? You know, right, and some right. of them are more practical than others, and others are for maybe reasons we don't think are the best reasons, but that's not our place to judge. That's their call to make on that. The first call is just to align, figure out what their goal is. Don't think, yeah. don't treat, like, don't treat students. Students are not, like, material objects that we get to just, like, <laughs> manipulate into whatever we want, because right. that's the whole that's the whole point of why they're moral creatures. They're moral entities. So they yeah. actually have to have the power of consent. You cannot change them unless they consent to it. 
That is very true. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I'm coming up. All of us have yeah. been in school. If a yeah. teacher, a teacher has the power of a grade, which is obviously mm-hmm. one of our methods, but that power only really works if they consent and they think it's worthwhile in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because I've had a lot of, you know, mediocre students that you're like, gosh, I just wish, I just wish that you, you would do better. I, I know you've, you've got the abilities to do that. But it is when they finally go, oh, wait a minute, you know, just something clicks, whether it's something we've said or something they've done with a project. Uh, they're like, wow, okay, this is kind of cool. And then all of a sudden they just immerse themselves in it and they've, they've, uh, they've committed to, to learning it. And, uh, and it, their, their grades turn around, their projects yeah. turn around. All and it I takes is students, that, that one yeah, moment. All it takes yeah. is that yeah. one opportunity, that one change and everything moves in. And what right. was once so difficult and seems so arduous becomes effortless. Exactly. That's true power. I mean, that's, I mean, in terms of education, in terms of like what an educator is, this is why we're leaders yeah. or have the potential to be because a leader doesn't actually deal with the results themselves. They, right. All they do is just line up using their instruments, right? And their, in terms of their methods to make that moment happen and then let the, let the person, they subordinate in different ways, want to move in that direction on their own. You're right. just there to support them at that point. Exactly. And I'm not um, uh, trying to think of, of fancy language and fancy words, which isn't my strong suit. <laughs> uh, I'm, I would be, I would not be doing any justice if I was to say, I've seen this happen in many classes. My point of what I'm getting at is I've seen exactly what we're talking about the majority of the time and this is this is not some kind of fast talking um, stuff to kind of make it all sound great for for our conversation with podcast and typography involved. Yeah. But I've seen those moments, those changed moments happen in my typography class eight out of ten times. I I don't know why, but that's where finally where things are like, wow, okay, this this is pretty neat stuff. This is really different. This is pretty cool. Can I, can I give you a thesis why I think that's the case? I don't know case? if it's me. I, I'd like to think it's me. <laughs> You're clearly contributing to that, Peter. I would yeah, agree with you. Yeah. But I can, give uh, you, I can give you a thesis why I think that is. Sure, sure. And one of the things I did want to ask you is why typography becomes, becomes that in communication design. Yeah. yeah. So the first part about why that revelation seems to happen more often in the type class and other disciplines or other depart- classes I think is, I mean, it was part, I mean, I say this because I, I experienced this myself. When I met yeah. Joshua Darn, the type designer, and I was demonstrated to me this whole reality that I took it for granted, right? Because I only saw letters as method of communication, yeah, not as I've a heard form, this before. Mm-hmm. right? Not as an actual yeah. form that has affective causal properties onto people. Yes. that are separate but a parallel with the communication function at exactly the same time. Because, that, you know, within philosophy, that's real understanding is not just intellectual reasoning, right? It has an emotive quality too. To understand something, to grasp it totally, it's both an emotive and a rational intellectual activity. And type actually achieves both at the same right. time. And that is a beautiful thing. And that's why I get so excited about it. Well, that's why I remember literally the... The first lecture Josh gave, talking about type, I just, at, eight, at 19, was just awestruck at just the intelligence of this man. And I was just like, at, I was a very stupid person most of my life, but God bless me for at least having the wisdom and the moment of seeing like, I want a mind like him. 
I want to be yeah. him, you know, and that's, that's what I mean by virtue because virtue ultimately is becoming a kind of person, specifically a good yeah. person in this way. And I think, I think typography is a mechanism to allow that when given the right opportunity. Yeah. So the, the, the second half of that question then, um, you know, I, I've heard you speak highly of typography a lot, and I've heard you say that typography is first when it comes to communication design. Why do you, why do you feel that way? Can you ex elaborate on that, explain yeah. that? I mean, like yeah. I said, so it, well, first of all, a couple of grounds. One is on the question of communication, why does communication matter so much? Or why is it like a different activity than from other activities? Running, yeah. walking, pushing, building. Why is communication different? Well, for, I mean, first of all, one, it's because we need that for a community. For people to talk to each other, we have, it requires communication, right? And right. the communication, in terms of, because animals communicate, but as Aristotle says, they communicate what's painful and harmful, right, only. We can do that too, but we also have what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. We, have, we actually use communication in moral claims, in moral discussions, right? It's basically what makes us human. That's basically what it's yeah. getting at, in that specific sense. So the essentialness of what makes us human beings and what makes civilization possible is communication. And that was in terms of now tying into design, what we're talking about right now, written communication was one of the major revelations of civilization. There is no civilization without writing. And we forget this because it's so common. It's been around for, for thousands of years. But it actually is one of the major revolutions. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of times people believe there's been, it was in the Times Magazine said the greatest invention ever made was the Gutenberg Press. It's just that it, yeah. that's, but that's only an ex acceleration of the original right. technology, the original innovation exactly. of written communication. So I just want to demonstrate why this is so important in terms of its impact. Not just, an, and that's why I said before about a power that even a king has to bend the knee to. It's because even kings need communication. That's kind yeah. of the point. So if we agree with all that, now leads to the other point. Because this is actually a problem, even within, within if you read Plato, and they talk about, you know, in fact, you have syllables, and they're made of, they're made of elements, which are letters. But after the, they can't really describe the element. Well, we can, because we know elements, in this case type, are figure-ground relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Positive space and negative space in a certain interval relation of both existence and non-existence. I mean, I don't get into it, woo -woo, but positive space and negative <laughs> space, if yeah. you put it that yeah. way, right? Arranged in a certain yeah. arrangements. And we know that certain arrangements are done better than others, both for its own sake, as well as towards certain ends. And by yes. accepting all those points, we then now have demonstrated the art, of type, the art of typography, right? The body of knowledge that discusses these kind of questions. And, and once you know that, that's actually the window to get from there. If you're willing to go along with it, ultimately, you'll get to higher forms of knowledge, in my opinion, right? Because from Excellent. eventually, you're gonna start asking, okay, what is this communication for? Right, yep. it's actually like exactly. a seed yeah. within it, and it can lead to a much more intensive understanding. There was a chair of my department at Parsons that I remember I saw a year or two after I graduated. And I told him what my career direction was, type design, all that, and he commented, "You know, I never met a dumb type designer. They don't really exist." <laughs> and I think it's what he's getting. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of the point he was getting at. Maybe yeah. not directly the way the same what I'm saying, but as an analogy. Right, right. I think that's awesome. Um, so we're talking about community and being able to communicate uh, on a intelligent level. Um, empathy. Yeah. So uh, can we unite typography with empathy? Well, I think we can. And I think the reason why is so empathy is defined as the ability to understand other people's emotions, right? 
So you can observe other people's emotions, you can feel them yourselves. Yeah. So there's an idea that the, sub the subjectivity inside another human being, we can grab at. That's what's being, basically being said <clears throat> from a motive point of view. <clears throat> Sorry, pardon me. No, you're fine. Yeah. yeah. So if we, I, I ended up before, right? If we accept that type, instead of being just this passive thing that just exists, right? And then content just flown into it. Instead, we accept that type actually has causal properties of affection, meaning they can cause illicit emotions in people. Yeah. And if we want to produce certain outcomes for people that are not ourselves, both in terms of activities as well as emotive states, I mean, I, I would argue that's a kind of empathy. We, have to, we actually are required to have empathy. And we actually, and not just like in the sense that we just absorb it and then we, have, we just kind of like have it be in us. It more importantly, it guides our direction. Right, it guides are what we're doing, what we're producing. So there's that aspect of it, just on a professional level, working with working with for users, but also in the fact of when you have a work in progress, right? When you're having when you're working on something, I actually consider those work in progresses, those pro, those things as conversations. They're actual entities that have what's working, what's not, what's your intentions, what's the struggles. By you asking those questions and being empathetic to it being open to it, not being so quick to solve the problem. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times, how you solve the problem does not have a full picture. Right. I mean, it's, I've seen that many times in critiques where people will look at something and go, okay, do this, this, and this, and this. And like, they just give a prescription. Right. Which may right. be of value in the very, very beginning when students have no grasp of concept at all or any of the principles. But that should be done very mildly and only as a last resort. Far often, you need to grab at the principles first. Mm -hmm. of what's being discussed here. Because usually, how you solve a problem via principles can go in many different directions right, based on right. the limitations and needs of the time. This is what I mean by, this is, yeah. these are ultimately empathetic points. Because that's the same point. When someone gets upset and you understand where they're coming from, you don't just yeah. understand they're upset. You understand why they're upset, what's the significance of it, and what limitations are actually causing exactly. them to be locked into this mode. Exactly, yeah. And even then, is that what they're reacting to for what they're being upset about is that the actual cause or is that, you know, and I've seen that in design too. It's like, uh, I'm going to be really rudimentary with this one, but somebody will say, well, I'm doing a brochure. It's like, well, why are you doing a brochure when you actually get to the, you know, to the essence of what is really being asked of this communication? It's, it's a poster or whatever it might be. You know what I mean? So it's like, well, yeah. I'm just going with that knee-jerk reaction of this is what's causing me to make this choice so yeah. but looking at right. looking at symptoms instead of causes yeah. Right? yeah so that so that empathy and having that empathy makes us be more in tune to what's being asked of us is that kind of like a a really shorter if i had to put that in a sentence blurb or, or would there be more had, to it, it yeah if you had to summarize it well i think yeah. another i think that's a first step right yeah but I think also a big part of it too is a lot of times we don't have all the answers and we don't even need no. to have all the answers. Right, right. We just need awareness. Awareness. I think that's great. And you're talking about the process and how in the process is where we need to have the empathy. It's where we need to be aware of what we're doing because by the time we're done and we produce it, it's too late unless you redo and, you know. And people get very defensive and, and it yeah. doesn't work because people get defensive yeah. and, and then dialogue about finished things are really more position arguments. Like, this is the right answer, clearly. 
you're, and then you're proposing a counter anger in it, and they're going to try to defeat you by saying, yep. no, yep. the limitations and all the other reasons mean, means this is the right answer. So yep. it's actually a kind of, um, it's kind of like a courthouse argument, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to revealing a real truth in the matter. Like it might right. be a real mm-hmm. truth, but in a very, in a much more uh, method of the vision, right? A method of destruction or breaking yeah. down versus bringing up, right? Right, right. Yeah, which, has, I, which is seen, valid, but it, but it has its place. It's not the full yeah. use. And, and you're right, though. I've seen many final critiques, you know, kind of go that route, right? Instead of really kind of getting to the to the root of things. Um, so then, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts then on this process? Because um, I, I know that's something that you mentioned to me prior as well. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think I think I think part of it is. I mean, a very t- a very typical problem I think a lot of professors will point out is that students will do like one rendition of a direction, right? Maybe three yes. if you really force them to go off the edge on right, it. Right, right, right. And I understand why, because they're thinking about efficiency of time and energy. So they don't want to, like, when, versus when I know professionally what happens a lot is you got to do, like, when you're a junior designer at, ad, at an agency or something, you're doing hundreds of directions. It's like a crazy yeah. order of magnitude different mode of working. But yeah. why? Because the question you need to ask is why? why? Like, why is that? And why is the student not connecting what's going on here? Well, I think is ultimately arts, the art world, we don't really work by deduction. It's not like we have a master plan and then we produce the result by deduction of figuring it out. No, we're inductive in our methods. We produce stuff and then we look at it. Does it work? And a lot of times we need, real, we need actually work analogically in the sense that we look at how this pairs with this and then we need to see how that compares to this or to this, right? We have these kind of comparisons and we start making assessments yeah. like, okay, this is better than that. Right, and then you move on yeah. to uh, the next variation, and then you start doing this test, and maybe you'll you'll be a little more systematic eventually. But that's the in terms of the process. What I'm getting at is we got to learn methods of dealing with multiplicity, to multiplicity, randomness, the fact that quite frankly, mm-hmm. a lot of times it's chance we we're dealing with here. Art loves chance, and chance loves art. As, that's true. As as uh, Aristotle comments, you know, they inter they, the arts are not a guaranteed perfection where all the time, we, when we do an activity, we get this perfect result the first time. Never happens. I've never heard a professional ever say that. And right. if we accept that, then that means our method of working as a process must be a deliberative kind of iteration. You know, but iteration always thinks about it as a linear mode, right? You're just doing one direction. It's really more about pushing to the extremis, right? We need to take a position and we got to push it as hard as we can in the other direction and then maybe build in between. Or build two other extremas and then see how the system all relates with each other to find the right okay. match yeah. that works. So in terms yeah. of process, that seems to be the, mo- the mode I'm seeing that works. Because students seem to get it once they, I get them to do that mode kind mm-hmm. of thinking. Like, don't give me like three steps that are like super close. Give me the extreme modes. Right. Right. Exactly. And then I let's like find that. the I, ones I, that work. Yeah, I do struggle uh, myself with, with that. If I say, come to next class with six different ideas... You know, they've just, uh, everything's still in a circle, but they've just put the type closer together, you yeah. know, that, that, that type of answer. So I might, uh, I might tap into this, uh, into this come, uh, fall and see what I can, see what I can do and see if I can get that variety. Um, there's yeah. gotta be some different exercises too, that you can, uh, build on or, 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 or apply to kind of get them to do the extremes. And that's something have, that I've been thinking about. You would have to list about. attributes. So, for example, composition, yeah. size, color, yeah. image, texture. Like, yeah. 
you, you have to list the attribute that needs to be put in extremes, right? Yep. And you got to demonstrate what an extreme is. So show not this to this, this to this. <laughs> like it's yes, gigantic. Yeah. Like we need Just, a very big movement, not small movements right, in the beginning. Right. And then yeah, as you get closer, you, you basically get smaller in the movement. Yeah. Um, so you've also mentioned the, the relationship to all this with science. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I bring it up because a project, I'm, kind of like the project I'm working on right now is like the okay. perfect marrying of that. So it might be worth thinking into it because that's a big thing, okay. right? It's like I can't only talk about things I, or I have authority or experience in. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, did you want to elaborate on that now or do you want to, we can come back to that a little bit closer towards the end. Towards the end. I mean, I'm fine either way. We're yeah. just, we're just flowing. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like, cause, cause you know what I say about science. So here's the thing about that. So yeah. when you ask about like, I kind of stopped myself about what we should add to the curriculum because I was like, Shh, I'm just adding, I'm just keeping adding stuff. We're not talking about what <laughs> we're moving, but here's the one yeah. thing I will claim we need to put in. Uh, I think statistical inference, I think statistical analysis, we have to understand the science of randomness and probabilities. I think that's ultimately okay. uh, a body of knowledge that we are interacting with. We do, we de we're dealing with it all the time, yeah. but we actually don't have any knowledge of it. Like we don't actually understand the principles okay. or the properties behind it. What would that, I, I like that. And I think I've had similar thoughts, but before I can say I've had similar thoughts, can you elaborate on that a well, little sure. bit, that, I, that analysis? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a couple of grounds. I mean, one is, I mean, just the basic points about what kind of data is there in the universe, like, right, there's, if I remember correctly, there's, there's categories, there's ordinals, there's integers, and then intervals or integers, and then there's ratios, right? Those are different kinds of data points. So just a question of what kind of data point we're talking about. As a thing too, so what I just said right there, look where we're looking, like notice what we're paying attention to, we're looking at if, like how do we measure things and how do we have an effect on the world? So that's the first thing. It actually, it's a, it's a radical mode between of not even think of considering form for form's sake or desire for its own sake, but towards mm -hmm. its purpose. And when you adore as a purpose, how do you know you achieve the purpose? Yeah, you need to, right. that's that's first point why you need statistical inference and analysis. Uh, I say inference too because that's not just the that's that's including analysis because inference allows you from income from a body of knowledge that you generated, you can infer things more, right? You can generalize, you can get to predictions. You have all these powers of knowledge that you gain from this power. Now, it's not perfect, clearly, but it's certainly more, more powerful than an educated guess or gut instinct. Uh, yeah. So before I said about having a power that even a king will have to bend to. So if you use, if you know statistical inference, and you can demonstrate that, okay, within, a stand, within here's the mean of the result this direction gave me, and here's the distribution of it, I know from this sample, we can extrapolate to this population, this a probability within this range, this is what's going to happen. That's a lot okay. more confident to a stakeholder who has money down on the line than yeah. saying, okay, I think this is really cool looking. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. It's not going right. to, they're going to go that. if you yeah. use blue, it'll be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And by right, the way, this, right. is way, this is way more robust than just doing an A-B test. Like that's another thing too, is that because yeah. we're not involved, we don't have that knowledge. We don't even have the power to challenge on the outside when we're like subjected to A-B testing. So when we go, if you go into UX and all those other environments where yes. A-B testing is aggressively used, here's the yes. problem. What variables you variate? The designer should be the yeah. one to decide that. No one else. Because design is interrelations. And you can, and which relation is a, is a 
a significant relation change, only a design can answer that because it's by proportional ratios, not because versus some engineer, they have no idea. They can change the thought yeah. by one point. When's it significant? We would be able to answer that question, not them, for example. Right. But we can't even right. answer those questions. We can't even challenge them because we don't even have the tool set of statistical analysis and inference to make the argument. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Uh, if we can get our students thinking about that sooner, you know, maybe they'll be able to uh, talk about the the the, the purpose uh, behind what they've created uh, and have a better uh, better success rate at. And that's exactly the point, that point right? So instead, so instead of success being the grade I give you as a professor, yeah, the success is, did you get the outcome? Did you win? Did you get victory? Because yes. that's what the world really cares about. Education is really great because it gives us a safe uh, bin, like a little yeah. playground yeah. to just mess around and not pay consequences severely for it. But Peter, we both live in the adult world. It's not <laughs> yeah. how it works. When there's... right especially at the higher magnitudes, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars at stake. You can't mess around. You can't experiment. Like right. that's, no. that's why when people get, when right. people, yeah. like people op like, um, complain about sameness in design or stagnation <laughs> or regularization, well, because they're ignoring the limitations being imposed onto them of risk. You have risk exposure and you're going <laughs> to yeah. need tools yeah. to get around the risk exposure. And statistical inference and analysis right. is one of the tools we need to use to right. achieve that. And remind the student that just because you got 100 in your school does not mean you're going to get 100 in life. That's not that's, how it works, that's dude. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I have students all the time like, well, how do, how do I get an A on this project? And I was like, forget about the grade. Yeah. That's well, the first thing you need to do is forget about the grade. Uh, and then we talk about, you know, that, and, and that's my least favorite thing about being a being an educator is you have to put some numerical value onto the work they've done yeah um i think it has it, value. Yeah. i mean here's the thing i agree right because of that problem you just pointed out it becomes because the problem it become the the, the the test then like the examination becomes uh corrupted in the sense that everyone is trying to gain the system to get the score as opposed to actual right. success that that to grade was meant to demonstrate <laughs> Yeah, to the point of asking the professor, what do I need to do, you know? Yeah, to get so, my grade. I don't know, I run to it all yeah. the time. That's why I love this idea of we grounded this to actual metric results. Like if, you, if your job was to make a poster and get people to attend the, the event, if no one came to the event, you failed. Yeah, interesting. I love that idea. <laughs> I have so much protesting from my students on that one. But yeah, that's I think a scary thing too because just trying to get people to come to an event in itself is a is a challenge. Do you know how hard so, that is? Like that's yeah. see that's the thing too, right? It, it, it's it like grounds you into the reality of existence, and it's yeah. so both incredibly challenging yet so beautiful when you achieve victory. Like it actually makes you appreciate real victory because it actually shows that you actually have a power that you actually did something in the world. When before yeah. you didn't. And I think it's right. a very powerful thing. And by the way, you can make the six really small. You could just make it a club, like the Grab a Design Club after school. Yeah, like, yeah. hey, make it smaller so you're not doing like a gig poster for some yeah, right, uh, right. rock band or something like down the street. Uh, do it within the school, university community. You can definitely do it. I've been definitely thinking, meditating on that as, a, as uh, new modes of curriculum not in my mind yeah. already. I don't have that kind of authority yet as an adjunct, but... Uh, I think that's, I think that would be a radical different way of teaching because yeah. it makes it really ground to some external energy, external reality that's not the professor, 
per se, mm -hmm. but it still gives you the force of number. And number is very powerful because people, listen, numbers have an effect. It's no different yeah. when I, I watch my weight by checking the, scaling myself. Right. And when I see that, I see I tipped over a little much, I'm going to take it a little easy subconsciously yeah. in my snacks and all that that day or week, you know? Right. So right. numbers definitely have a power, but the problem is they can be easily gamed if, uh, if, if not done the right manner. Yeah. Uh, speaking of numbers, I'm going to um, ask you maybe a little bit impromptu or, or off script, but on script question. Yeah. Okay. How's that for an ambiguous like lead in? That's fine. <laughs> um, do you see, are, are you getting, so the foundation question print versus digital. I've asked this a lot. But with the discussion we're having, does that fit into the context? How does that fit into typography? How does that fit into the work that you're doing? And is it affecting your teaching? Oh, totally. Um, well, I guess on the first point in terms of print versus web, I mean, naturally, there's certain, it's a little easier because we've just been kind of yeah. trained into print, which is kind of a given. Yeah. So it's a little bit easier. And if, you, if, you're, if your priority is type one, then you just do, you could listen, your priority is to get the students to understand the concepts and principles, right? And the right, mode, right. you don't want, it, it's not prudent to dump them with, with, with a digital question when they're still learning the principles in the first place. I get it. Yeah. Uh, just on the practicalities of teaching. Like you don't want to sit there and have to go over what CSS and HTML is and all that. But I got to say, there are capacities that the web experience are just fundamentally different from print. There's a grain to the web and a certain way of yeah. working that only working on the web is going to give you. So I'm also not in the camp of just saying make mock-ups and just slap it back and forth. Because first of all, I'm yeah. going to challenge you practically on that. When you give that to an engineer or someone else to convert into actual code, they're going to do whatever they want. And I guarantee you, they're not going to have the <laughs> nuance to know that, no, you're letting your line height at this degree yeah. is totally not the right one. Like you think you could just round up to the to the full unit versus to the decimal point? No way, dude, you get back to those decimals. Uh, <laughs> I'm just being honest, like they yeah. can just take whatever, just round up yeah. because they're too much an abstraction and they're thinking too yeah. much is just like this entity from the outside versus a whole existence that designers are been trained to look at as a whole. That's on that side of the issue. On the other side, there's totally capacities and activities that the web can do that we've not even tapped into. I really don't believe that. Um, that is by type not being so tightly bound to the web, I almost want like almost a separate curriculum for the web type discussion. Because those mm -hmm. because once those principles are understood and that could be explored and expanded on, we could reduce really amazing, crazy things with that. Not just in our raw yeah. aesthetic yeah. experience, but really in a fun in a function experience, like in terms of activities. Yeah. And doing these that only the web experience can do. And by the way, you can easily tie them both together, you know, in different ways. Uh, yeah. So one of my favorite examples, you know, is the idea of like personalized printouts that you, you give to people, right? So the idea of using technology to personalization combined with print. I've seen advertising people do it all the time. It's very effective because it applies on the principle that what do people care about themselves? So when you yeah. give communications tailored to them and a personalized matter they can hold in their hands, it's very valuable. This is about, it's true in print and web too, but there's certain things about the, in hand that are also very powerful. Like I've done as a yeah, gift, yeah. I did that. Uh, like as a typeface I was producing, I asked for people to give me their favorite word and I typeset it out uh, and I wrote a note in the back. There's, to this, that was done about three, four years ago. 
people still have it in their offices. Like, oh, oh yeah, that's great. That's so much superior than an email that would have been blown away in 10 seconds or exactly. some just junk yeah. mail promotional piece women again junk mailed completely yeah that's an interesting analogy to think about it and and uh yeah i mean once you've said it i'm like oh yeah duh, that makes sense but people will hold on to things that are actual things they can hold and look at hang on their wall as opposed to that digital thing that kind of gets lost in all the other digital things and just filed yeah. as data somewhere yeah i, I mean I how, analogy how, how long do you go back and I, look at that stuff you know yeah, it's a analogy to books. I love physical books. I have books both in audiobook, PDF, and print because mm -hmm. there are certain times I need the like I need a serendipitous like wait. I grab the book and then I go through it really quickly, right? And I see yes. my my margin notes of what I said the last time I reviewed the note, right? Like right. I don't have it's too fluid in the other environments. Or I'll listen to an audiobook and pick up. Oh, that's really good. What chapter is that? And I need to go back later to read it. So right, right. It's really more instead of. Um, you know, I think other people have said this before, right? In the sense that it's not really like one or the other. It's just that there's a kind of multiplicity that's occurring, which has its own problems because people, yeah. again, are limited in time and resources. And we, it's, it's like chronically the big problem of human existence. It's like we just want to be told the one thing. We want to do like the one thing that's going to yeah. make our lives awesome. But right. that never is the case. Right. It's always, even right. if there just is. Just give us the answer, yeah. Yeah, or just like if give us the answer, that's one mode of it, but also it's like doing this one activity is going to do it. When it's right. never the case. Like right. at best, there's one principle, but that, how that principle gets expressed is through a diversity, you know? Exactly. That's, that's a, yeah. a big kind of downer in reality, you know, like you don't get the coast because no. the world has an inherent diversity. Yet at the same yeah. time, not like it doesn't have any unities or any kind of groundingness that we can grab at, right? So you can't just yeah. be like, whatever, it's all irrelevant. It's all just not, it's just right. noise. Right. It has no significance right. it's all at all. Cause and effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a good friend uh, back in Indiana. She teaches uh, at Purdue, and I'm constantly uh, uh, hi Jesse, constantly uh, reaching out to her and uh, saying, hey, you know, have they solved this for the web yet? Have they solved this for the digital environment, screen devices, um, you know, like hyphenation and and individual letter kerning and different things like that? And she's like, well, they're they're working on things. Things are getting closer. It's, it's coming, you know? And I'm like, oh, we just need to get it right now, you know? Um, so yeah, we want that one, that one solution and just move on with it. But it, it's so hard to, it's so hard to get there. Uh, what, what are you, uh, what are you working on now that, well, one that you can talk about, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, like, uh, TypeCon's coming up. I'm going to miss TypeCon again. So am I. Okay. Uh, boy, yeah. Um, the, the, Toughest thing for a full-time educator is the the scheduled date. Yeah, because um, I mean, I guess you, you have classes at the end of August too, right? Yeah. yeah yep, same yeah, thing. Yeah. So the, that yeah, in, first in day of class, you don't want to just not be there. Literally, you know, the, first day, I, I've done in past years at TypeCon, I would fly right from TypeCon right to my class, like with suitcase. Oh I would have oh. it prepared. I would find yeah. my, my syllabus and all that ready to go. So I would just roll yeah. in from the, from the airport with my suitcase into the class. Oh, God. Yeah, for that yeah. 8 a.m. class. That, that's aggressive. Yeah. 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 So I'm going to miss that. But, um, but yeah, I, what, are you, what are you working on? Um, any conferences coming up? What, what is Tom doing in what Tom's Tom world? What is Tom doing in that, Tom's world? I mean, the yeah. major project, type design related, that I'm working on is uh, a variable font for improving reading proficiency. So okay. this was uh, supported by Google, and I gave, a, I gave a talk about it at Ice Type in Istanbul, the public presentation of it. So 
long story short, actually through, and this is actually why podcasts matter a lot. It was through a podcast. Uh, I think you've had you guess Diane uh, before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. It was through Design her, Recharge? Yes. So yes. through her podcast, what happened was a researcher discovered me, uh, my background I was doing. And for the last 20 years, she's an educational therapist uh, who just completed her PhD in education. Uh, basically, uh, help work with students who had struggled, who were struggling readers. And the, to give you context within those, within that discipline, the paradigm basically been it was like a cognition problem. Like there's something wrong with the student's brain, or there's something wrong in the teaching method. So it's either okay. the teacher or the student that's the problem. Seems reasonable. I mean, that's the thesis. And sure. there are many attempts yeah. to try to solve this problem, right? Change the content, invest more in teacher training, all this other stuff, but not didn't work very well. Not very good results. Bonnie came, the Dr. Sha uh, Bonnie Shaver Troop, that's the researcher in question. Okay. Uh, she came up with a thesis 20 years ago. Wait a minute. But they're all looking at type. They're looking at the text on paper. Maybe it's the environment that's causing the problem. In this case, the mm -hmm. environment in this case, it's not the people, it's the environment. It's the, what's called typographic factors. Type. Okay. That's how the type is said. That's basically, yeah. that, that was her thesis. So she just, again, no training background in type, went through and started experimenting what interventions could help improve uh, reading proficiency. And reading proficiency, just to give you context, is broken into three parts, decoding, fluency, and comprehension. Okay. Decoding is you can basically see symbols and convert them into sounds. Fluent seems to be able to do so very comfortably without any effort, like riding a bike. You know, when you first ride a bike, it's really awkward. You're over-processing. You're yeah, straining yeah. a lot. But, for, but over time, it just comes na second nature to you, right? It's still the same okay. activity, yeah. just your mental load on it gets much easier. And then comprehension is the ability to convert that, that conversion into understanding, right? So that's the, and the point is yeah. that you actually need the, you need the more fundamental Kant's properties to get the, the higher level ones. So to have fluency, you need decoding. If you need, if you want comprehension, you need fluency and decoding, right? So it's a channel link going one direction. Okay, so okay. With, yeah. with, I, yeah. I, I, I didn't like, want to dump it all in one shot. So <laughs> I just want to make sure we, we're, we're good so far. So yeah. long story short, uh, the biggest problem struggling readers have once they have decoding, they can, they can see letters and convert into sounds, is doing so comfortably. And okay. what Bonnie found when she talked to me, from she does numerous practice with her students and studies. When she talked on the phone about it, she said, Thomas, it's if we expand the white space inside the letters and between the letters, we can affect the fluency, the ease of which a reader is able to read the text. And I, I heard okay. that and I instantly grasped it. I was like, of course. Yeah. yeah. If the stuff, if the white space is too cramped or not right fit, it's not going to work. Type's going to be hard to read. Like that right. makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, so I immediately grasped it. And I was kind of like, kind of quite frankly, dumbstruck that a researcher from education realized that point, you know? <laughs> so I was like, now, well, go on. Yeah. Does this affect our uh, ascenders and descenders? Is it an X height thing or is it just the, um, the, the condensed versus extended? I mean, clearly properties <laughs> like X height, right? Specifically X height probably is a relevant factor. I'd imagine, uh, also a big one is actually contrast is a massive one as well, mm -hmm. uh, right? So you need yeah. a low contrast form. The researchers ha are, have a controversial point about serifs, right? So they argue the serifs are, are hindering versus aiding in legibility. So that's like, that's, right. or fluency. So that's a controversial point. Uh, I think a more, real, a more reasonable claim is it's, con it's contrast, right? So basically high contrast faces uh, are not conducive to good fluency. 
makes sense because that's again an issue of white space. It's too oh, much. Wow. It's too much white compared to black in certain areas. How far? Uh, how far along has this research uh, come so far? So what's happened is so. I mean, so we know for twenty years in independent studies, uh, of sample sizes of about ranging from like twenty to fifteen over numerous periods of time, getting the same results uh, through this process. So here's the thing. So when she talked to me about it, uh, the major revelation or major point about it is is that it's not like it's like one setting solved the problem. No, mm -hmm. it's a degree right. of increasing intensity. So you start at a really tight, relatively tight fit, and then you show basically basically as a family. Right, increasing modes of intensity of more and more white space, both inside and between the letters. So think of it basically the type is becoming expanded and tracked out at the same time. You can think of it that way. Mm. Okay. Right? And it, here's the thing: it's not like one setting solved was perfect for everybody. It had distribution. Some people did better with, with say Times New Roman in the control versus the series. But even within the series, some people did best at the really tight fitting. Some did best at the second level, third level, fourth level, fifth level, six, hmm. for example. Okay. So, we'll go okay, on. no. So I'm thinking. So your variable typeface is it is it going to be then intended to work in a digital? Like, are they are they reading print to get? Yeah. So here's yeah. So, so two parts of that. Part one was I heard okay. all this. I was like, wait a minute. So these are these are static distinct elements, right? Basically movements between the different family. She's like, yes. I was like, well, dude, this could be a variable font because to mm -hmm. give the analogy, this is basically. Well, wait a minute. If we're saying that we could find the optimal fit for the reader, right, and it's not the same for everybody, and it's within a certain right. range, well, what's to say that, say, nine, say within a certain study, nine people did the best result with this setting? Who's to say some people need something a little more towards this level, a little right. less, and some people need a little more, like eyeglasses. Eyeglasses are not, first of all, one, one setting of eyeglass for everybody, but even right. then, they have a range of options, right? It's not like you get six eyeglasses and that's it. Everybody's got to read with, got to use the same eyeglass. <laughs> right, uh, right. Or those six, that's it. It's all your choices are. So the variable font technology allows for versus the discrete selection, continuous selection. So you can get down to the second decimal point degree of optimal fit for our user, right? Mm -hmm. And okay. the, so that's the, that was the major revolution I saw from that, from that point. So we produced okay. the, basically I pitched this to Google. They said, go, go for it. It sounds really promising. Do the project and produce the study to demonstrate it. So that's what we did. Oh, fantastic. We produced the fonts. We produced the study. Yeah, subject of 20 students. And yeah. we demonstrated that 17 out of 19 were, did better with Lexan. And it followed a distribution of, of uh, Gaussian in nature, bell curvy basically in yep. nature, yeah. uh, around a certain setting, but not, not e but even the one that had the, the median results, right? The, the best was the, the highest number, uh, for Lexan, for that setting of Lexan mm -hmm. wasn't even, was not a majority. Now, is that a, is that a sans serif or a serif typeface? Sans serif. Sans serif. And the control was times in Roman. Okay. Cause I was going to ask, is there in this variable typeface an extent of serif to sans serif. No, it wasn't considered the essential uh, metric. Yeah. Would that be something to, for future research? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I wonder what that would... This is, yeah. See, this is exactly why we need designers in research, because we yeah. have to frame the question. That's the whole point. Exactly. I yeah. mean, a, an educator ain't going to know about the difference, or why, right. it, why it would be significant if it's serif versus not. Uh, right. But in general... I mean, the, if, we look at, if we look at Cooper Black... You know, the serifs on, on Cooper Black are more like these little um, wedges, if you will, little yeah. spurs, you know, uh, on the, but is that still considered, you know, a serif 
typeface. To be honest, you know? I mean, probably in the research, it's the general position is that those serifs are accidental. They're not the essential <laughs> quality. No, I mean, that's, right. that's huge because yeah. a lot of people have been told that it's the serifs. Like, by default, serif type always in body copy. When the research has shown that's not true. It's, right. it's not like seasoning. It's not like my personal position. We don't have the research to back it up. Uh, it's not that the serifs hurt you per se. It's really mm -hmm. more the contrast that's the question. So a low contrast is the exactly. serifs. That's my, see, that's my point. See the difference? Yeah. See, yeah. one, you're so kind of like... trying to read Palatino body copy. It's like, ooh. That's, yeah. that's a rough one, but it yes. works, but it all depends on its context, its setting, and all kinds of other variables, But going on. which which will maybe bore a lot of readers, but just make us super excited to talk about for hours. For hours and hours. <laughs> Wait, no, but the point is, so one is that there's a multiplicity of need, right? And one font, you're going to solve the problem. So it's right. gonna, you're going to need a method of delivery that's a diverse, that serves a diverse right. population. So you need a measurement, a tool of measurement, which we have. I didn't go into the math yeah. of or the specifics of fluency, how it's measured. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, that's all I can share. We can share a link to everybody to check that out because. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah, let's I don't do wanna, that. Let's... I don't want to bore people with those particulars. Uh, yeah. But the point is, this is actually, that's actually rather important because in the past, a lot of times, font choices are allows accommodation within special ed, for example. But it's always based on preference. So it's like, oh, the, the yeah. subject said this was a bet. They preferred it. But that's not a metric. Like, that's just a subjective opinion. That's not, yeah. oh, you actually had a better fluency score uh, with this font versus the other. And we demonstrated yeah. that is the case. So, for example, uh, on, I guess in the study, the average was 110 words correct per minute for Times New Roman. With Lexan, it was 128. Yeah. Remember correctly. So, it's about 20% improvement. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, uh, I'm going to ask you uh, this one question. I think then we'll... we'll um, wrap up for our discussion today, but we'll totally. get you back on the podcast to talk more about um, how this project is developed. Uh, that'd be great. Yes. Um, you, you're mentioning opinion and how it, it just, why we have the amount of typefaces we have, because not everything works for every situation or for every person. Eric Gill once said, there are as many typefaces as there are fools. If you could speak to Eric Gill today, what would you say to him about that comment? I would say he's right in one sense, right? When it's not guided by good reasoning. So that's absolutely correct. Um, but in another way, uh, he's wholly wrong because human beings have different needs, right? And the question is, what is, uh, it's kind of like instead of a, a kind of virtue in a sense of optimal fit, right? To be optimally fit for the environment. The presumption always was the human being had to change, the fit onto the environment. But the paradigm we're looking at is instead, well, how can we make the environment fit to the person? And we have the technology to do so now. And by the way, I mean, I'd love to come on again and talk more about this because the, the yeah. implications of this research and the re production we're doing are gigantic. Because if we actually understand this paradigm of fitting typography to users in a way that's, that's measurable and by reasoning, that's good, mm -hmm. it, doesn't just stop, it doesn't just stop with the type. It goes into the layout, the images used, the composition, all yeah. these other things. So it actually takes, it takes variable, not even variable font, and flexible typography, the discussions by Tim Brown, for example, and things like that. It take, those are all based on the idea of either random axes being discussed, subjectively selected, or the viewport determining what content is presented in what way. What if instead, or in addition to that, it was for the user, for the optimal fit for them? Yeah. That is beyond right, just right. a preference per se but also for optimal fit. 
So it's actually like the next level of like almost if then conditional typography, right? Yep. Because that's the thing is that if we understand there's a range, you can't just make one solution that solves all the problems. Because as you said, there's a diversity of need. But what you can do is build a relation of extremes. We know within a certain population will solve these problems. And just because, and that's the thing, I think a lot of times when we think about that, people go on and go, well, whatever, we have no standards. We'll have no reasoning behind it. It'll just be like, yeah. uh, you know, a good example when you have text that, say, a Wikipedia, the text measure goes all the way across the edge. No matter how big your screen is, the measure just goes forever. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. uh, I think people kind of have like, kind of like, a, they put their hands up and go, whatever, we can't solve this problem. So, whatever. No, I think we can. I think at yes. a certain level, yeah. we're gonna actually going to have a level of, of power on the typography to create optimal fit for not just viewports, but also for what that user needs. So what is the right measure for them? What is the right line height? What's the right margin relationships? All those are conditionals based on relations. So all you got to do is just understand those and build mm -hmm. a map as a kind of mapping between the extremes and let interpolation work out things in between instead. Yeah, so you, that's an excellent. Basically, you design twice. You design basically the two extremes for the purpose you're aiming for, and you yeah. let and you let interpolation or inference work on everything in between. And you use data to verify your points. So when you know you're wrong, if you if you do your measure, if your measurements are wrong, to demonstrate the case, you adjust as needed, and you get the best result. That's fantastic. And that that that's you know a big part of my my pedagogy is uh, in my a lot of my discussions. We're in a humanistic revolution. You know, it's about us as human beings and what our needs are, uh, and which is why I've actually used Eric Gill as that example. One, because he doesn't believe in having a you know a whole bunch of typefaces, but two, his answer, his solution was a humanistic solution. You know, Gill Sands was meant to find a a, a softer way, a more humanistic way to um, relate the letter form. So, you know, yeah, but unfortunately, misguided because he thought the one solution was going to solve the problem. So he was wrong. He was faulting his reasoning True. in that. Right. Plus he also, didn't have the integers. Yeah. yeah also was plus, uh, not the best person, not, not the best person, the best moral character. <laughs> I don't really need to go right. into those we're, details. We'll let our, uh, viewers and listeners do the research on that. Uh, yeah. And get those answers. Uh, Thomas, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I had a great conversation and, uh, we'll get you back on the podcast to talk about some of the results from that, from that research and that variable typeface you're working on. Absolutely. Uh, it sounds great. exciting. Awesome. I know I'm very excited about it. We have a lot of great things happening next year too with it. So yeah. more to talk about. That'll be super. And and uh, like we said, we'll leave some links uh, for everyone in the description, uh, both on the podcast, online on my website, as well as on uh, YouTube. So people will be able to check all that out. I've had a great time catching up with you. It's It's been too long and uh, I hope the next time uh, isn't as long. So. I agree, Peter. Thank you so much for all having right. me. I really appreciate you it. You bet. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. All right. Take care, Thomas. Thank you for joining me on this episode. The Designed Podcast website is located at thedesignedpodcast.com. There you can find notes on the episodes, links to our guests, links to resources, and more regarding the many things discussed during each show. If you find the Designed Podcast interesting and informative, please subscribe on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast service. You can also follow the Designed Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our video version of the podcast on YouTube. Please join us for the next episode of the Designed Podcast and let's continue to create success in design education. <laughs>